on week number three of a teaching series called I Am Jesus, a look at the life of the Christ. And uh, tonight, what I want you to do, I want you to turn to John chapter two. We were in Luke chapter two the last two weeks. Tonight we're gonna be in John chapter two. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at the story where Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding of Cana, okay? So go ahead and turn to John chapter two. Now, chronologically, let me just say, chronologically, you know, we went, Jesus the baby, Jesus the boy. Chronologically, this would actually not be the next event that happens as it concerns Jesus. The next event that you would see Jesus on the scene is whenever he comes to the River Jordan where John the Baptist is baptizing people. And, of course, we know that he baptizes Jesus. The dove comes down upon Jesus, which was symbolic of the Holy Spirit. A voice came out of the heavens and said, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. You guys remember the story? Okay. The next thing that you see chronologically is Jesus, or right after he gets baptized, is him um, being tempted in the wilderness. Okay? We know the story there, too. How many of you have heard the story where Jesus goes out in the wilderness, the devil tempts him three times, but Jesus overcomes him? by the word, quotes the word to him, and the devil runs off and leaves and comes back, you know, later on in the story. But most of us know that story as well. So I'm not going to preach on those things as it relates to the chronological order of Jesus's life events. We're going to talk about the wedding at Cana. But I wanted to bring up that those are two things that we're skipping over, but not because we don't believe them or emphasize them. We really, really, really do. But just because I feel like the Lord has something special that I want to communicate from the story of turning water into wine. Is that cool? Yes. All right. So turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. And we will start in verse, well, we'll start in verse 1 because that's where it picks up. John chapter 2, verse 1, says that on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. So let's pause right there really quick and just say that this wedding was probably a wedding of someone that they knew very well, but even possibly a lot of Bible teachers, scholars believe that this was probably Uh, someone that was a part of their family, the fact that Jesus was there with his disciples, but that his mother was also there, that this was probably somebody that they were close to, that they cared about in more ways than just a close friend, but possibly even uh, a family member. They could have been a cousin or an uncle or that crazy uncle, you know, whatever his name is. Everybody has a crazy crazy uncle. Could have been their crazy uncle, but they cared about him and whatever, you know, whoever. It could have been crazy uncle, so-and-so. I was thinking about this. This is, of course, a wedding and um, we were at a wedding today. I performed a wedding today. You guys know that Matt McDougall and Katie Rittenhouse were married today. And so we were at a mar- uh, wedding earlier today. It was a great wedding. But um, I was telling somebody actually last night at the uh, rehearsal dinner about some wedding experiences. And if you've ever been to a wedding, you've probably seen something one way or the other kind of outlandish. Okay. Whenever you're the minister of a wedding and Melissa has uh, orchestrated or what do you call that? Uh, coordinated um, a lot of weddings and in the roles that we have had in weddings and I've done dozens of weddings man I, some of the most outlandish things I've seen in my life have happened at weddings and I am not kidding I mean all kinds of stuff I didn't actually go to this wedding but Melissa went to a wedding one time where the, the bride and groom came in on four wheelers 
You remember that? That's different, right? I remember growing up, I just actually thought about this. I just recall this. I, my best friend, his mom and dad, they divorced, but then she got remarried. And that wedding, they came in on horses. Now, it was an outside wedding. We, thank God, you know, that could have been a mess, <laughs> literally. But so they rode in on horses. I mean, there's all, I remember one wedding I did. This was years ago, so don't try to figure out and think that you might know whose wedding this was. You don't know this person, these people. But at this wedding, we had just left, and thank God I didn't actually see it, but I heard like minutes after we left, minutes, literally, because they were starting to dance and get you know, wild and woolly, which we normally do, but we had to go. Just moments after we left, the bride and the sister of the groom who I believe was the bridesmaid, literally got in a fist fight on the dance floor. So some of the most outlandish things you've ever seen, even today, it was a great wedding, sweet wedding, but there was all kinds of weird sound issues. and You guys know what I mean? So there's always something that you're just like, wow. What a... How many of you have your own wedding stories? Raise your hand. It might have been, even been your own wedding. I don't know. So you're reading in this story here, and... There's a catastrophe, okay? And here's what happens. When the wine ran out, that was the catastrophe. When the wine ran out, and some of you are like, dude, that would stink if the wine runs out. When the wine ran out, it says that the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not come. I want to pause here, and I'm sorry if I'm pausing too much, but there's just a lot going on. In your translation, it might say, the wine has run out, exclamation point. How many of y'all has an exclamation point after that phrase? Yours does? In the original language, it is really set up to have an exclamation point, okay? So it wasn't just like, the wine ran out. It was like, oh man, the wine ran out. And the reason this is a big deal is because in that culture, wine was one of the most significant things in that wedding. I mean, there's a lot going on, but that was a big part of the wedding. And so for you to run out of wine was like a major social faux pas. There, it, it was bad news for you to run out. I, ran a, I read one commentary that says, to fail in providing adequately for the guests, talking about wine, would involve social disgrace. Now you gotta pick this up. You gotta get this before we move any further. Are you, are you picking up what I'm laying down? Are you scooping what, oh, okay. To fail in providing adequately for the guests would involve social disgrace. In the closely knit community of Jesus' day, such an error would never be forgotten and would haunt the newly married couple all of their lives. So this is a big deal. Jesus, they're out of wine, exclamation point. And it's probably, she's probably concerned because it was probably one of their relatives, somebody they knew really well, and there was this compassion that was rising up in her. The reason this was so important is because wine in the rabbinical world, in that culture, in the religious leaders, in the, in the culture in general, wine was a symbol of joy. It was a symbol of of joy. Therefore, to run out of wine would almost have been the equivalent. I'm reading, that's why I'm talking like this. 
To run out of wine would almost have been the equivalent of admitting that neither the guests nor the bride and groom were happy. Now, we don't get that because we don't, we don't, we don't emphasize things like that and, and have, things don't have quite that type of relevance today. We can blow things off. But in that culture, it was so important for the um, family of the people getting married to provide adequate wine because it's a symbol of joy that if you didn't do it, you're basically saying, I didn't care about enough about this. And the reason is, I'm not even happy. So keep that in mind. And then look at Jesus' response. He says, woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not come. And his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, I've always, this has always been something that has stuck out to me very specifically in Scripture. From the time I started reading it um, until today, and I'm going to share some, I've never shared any of these thoughts with anybody because some of these things you might think I'm crazy and stupid. But... I'm going to share it with you. Is that okay? Can I be vulnerable and share some things that will make me look possibly um, outlandish myself? First of all, I, you know, there's people who will teach this and preach this and, and even scholars that believe that Jesus was possibly rebuking Mary. Even he calls her woman instead of mother. Some of your translations say, dear woman. Because um, what does he say? What does this have to do with us? And the, and the real translation in that language truly has, woman, this is none of our business. And then he says, my time has not come. And so it sounds like a rebuke. I don't feel like it's a rebuke. I don't think it's likely that Jesus is rebuking his mother there. Not that he couldn't, not that he wouldn't, but I don't feel like he is. Others would say that Jesus was just not being very empathetic in that moment. It's not our problem. Because that's literally what it says. This is none of our business. It's what that means in the original language. This is none of our business. We've been learning in the marriage class, and, and if you've been a lot of, we've been having a lot of people at this, so you know what I'm talking about. If you've been, we've been learning about empathy, what it means to be empathetic. Empathy is when you are able to put yourself in someone else's shoes, okay? And it's really the number one thing required if you're going to have a healthy and strong, lasting marriage. If you're not able to be empathetic towards your spouse, then there's not a whole lot of hope, because there's that empathy, that that compassion that needs to be had there, because. Each one can go through their different things. So we've been learning about empathy, putting yourselves in one's shoes. So others, so some would say that Jesus wasn't empathetic about this. Does that sound like the Jesus we know? No, Jesus was a professional at putting himself in the place of someone else, wasn't he? We know that he put himself on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So I, I personally don't think that that's it. I don't think that he was, he was being um, uncompassionate or non-empathetic or however you even say that. I believe that he was always, from the time he was a kid, he was probably empathetic. So I don't think that's it. I personally believe, I personally believe that Jesus and Mary were having a playful moment. I don't know how it is in your house, but me and my wife and my three boys and, and Emma Kate is learning. I mean, we just kid with each other and joke. And we have playful moments all the time. And somebody's always busting the gut somewhere. <laughs> you know? Because we're playful. And we're serious at times, but a lot of times we're, we're playful. We enjoy life. We're playful. I think this is one of those moments between Mary and Jesus 
when they were having a little playful little moment at this wedding. Weddings are fun. Weddings are joyful. It was a moment to, be, to have fun. Can I share a couple things with you why I think that? Remember a couple weeks ago, I guess it was last week in fact, we talked about how Mary found Jesus in the temple at 12 years old. They, they, her and Joseph lost him for three days. And she was wigging out because she didn't know where, they, where he was. And they found him in the temple asking questions and answering questions with the religious leaders and the other people there. And she's like, she, wigging out, you know, why have you done this to us? You know, why have you left us? Or why have you run off? And why are you doing this? And he's like, did you not know that I would be about my father's business? And I told you that, and you can go back and listen, but I told you that at 12 years old was the official age where a son can take up the apprenticeship of his father's trade. And he can start really learning, okay? An official apprenticeship. But I told you that it wasn't until he was 30 that he could actually go out on his own. That was a tradition. It was a, um, something that was deeply ingrained into that community. At 30 years old, that's when you can branch off from your father and start your own business. So at that moment, he said, well, did you not know I would be about my father's business? And Mary may have even said, that may be true, <laughs> but <laughs> you may be Messiah, but I'm your mother, <laughs> you know? You come back home with us. And I don't know if she was angry and she was livid with him or not, but... At the end of that passage, it says that Jesus went home, obeyed, and all was good. So we know that, that, um, that this whole conversation, this conniption that Mary had when he was 12 about him starting his father's business at 12, they probably said, you know, you come home and you'd be a carpenter with your earthly father. But Jesus knew he had a heavenly call, calling. So what I started thinking about, and, and I, I thought about this years ago, is that in this moment, I don't believe that Jesus was 30 years old yet. Can I just throw that out there? I don't think Jesus was quite 30. Most scholars believe that Jesus' birthday wasn't on December 25th. We hear that and we kick it around and whatever. We still celebrate Christmas on the 25th. That's fine. We do. But most scholars, Bible scholars, believe that his birthday was sometime in September, in the fall. Okay? Maybe even mid to late September. And there's a lot of reasons going back to calendars and math and issues and shepherds and doing this. And there's all kinds of reasons why scholars believe that. And you can go look it up on your own. I, I think that it wasn't his birthday yet. Because that, that season is filled with feasts, the fall, there's what you call the fall feast, and we talk about the seven feasts a lot. There's four spring feasts that happen, um, Passover and unleavened bread and um, first fruits and, and Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. Those are called the fall feasts, and there's this big gap in the summer months, and then it picks up with the fall feast, which is the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement. You guys picking up what I'm laying down? And then you have Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles is the very last one. And so these months where scholars believe that he was born are also the months where these feasts are happening. Does that make sense? In fact, there's some that believe that Jesus was actually born on the first day of tabernacles because tabernacles, because that would have been the time frame with all the math, but tabernacles was an eight-day feast. And remember, we learned week one that Jesus was circumcised, and went through the purification process as a firstborn of a virgin son on the eighth day. Circumcised 
and, um, and uh, purified. And so that would have literally been on the very last day of a year's worth of feast. That would have been the last day or the fulfillment of the feast or the law. Does that make sense? Well, what do we know Jesus' MO was? To come and fulfill the law. Granted, this is all, you know, there's all kinds of theories about that. My point is, um, is that weddings are not allowed to happen during feasts. You couldn't do it. It was against, it was, it was against the law. It was against the, um, the Hebrew law. Because weddings are very, very joyous times. Okay? And um, this is certainly true of the, of the spring feast. But like the fall feast, trumpets through the, um, the sixth feast, which is the Day of Atonement. That's a real solemn time. A very solemn time for the people of Israel. It was a time of repenting and, 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 and praying and really seeking the Lord and fasting. So it was very solemn. So you can't have a wedding during that time. Why? Because the wedding is joyful. So you can't have it during that time. And then you look at the Feast of Tabernacles, and that was the most joyful of all the feasts. And so you can't have a wedding there. Why? Because a wedding was a seven-day event. And they didn't want the wedding and the joy therein to take away from the joy that would happen during the feast. And likewise, they didn't want the feast and the joy that's happening from that to take away from the wedding. So they just said, well, let's just don't have weddings during that time. Does that make sense? And so I believe that this wedding at Cana wouldn't have been during the time of his birthday. Because this happened right after he was baptized. And right three days after he was um, baptized by John. And this is all in the same season. So I, I just don't think he had turned 30 yet. I think this wedding probably happened late summer, really, 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 really early fall, which means that he probably wasn't quite 30. And so you can see why this will be a playful moment. Oh, my Lord Jesus. Mary probably said that like we do. Lord Jesus. Oh, Lord Jesus. They're out of wine. It's none of our business. My time has not come, remember? Y'all do whatever he says. You guys see what I'm saying? You think, you think Mary would, would really fall for Jesus being an empathetic loser? No. No way. I picture Mary rolling her eyes, knowing him, knowing that he would act. Because she's probably witnessed his empathetic ability, his empathetic, compassionate heart since he was a boy. And she was right. He did act. Look what he did. Verse 6 says, Now there were six stone water pots there for the Jewish custom of purification. So during this process, there was a custom. It's a law that had to do with purification. So they had these available six water pots. And they contained 20 to 30 gallons each. And Jesus said, fill the water pots with water. So he acted. He was just kidding with mom. What am I? I don't know. I could be wrong, but that's just the way I've always seen it. And I think there's some... 
There's some math to add up to that. They're out of line. Sorry, can't do anything about it. Y'all do whatever he says. My son's such a kidder. I tell you what, guys, y'all go grab the six, the six things of water and bring them to me. Fill the water pots with water. It says, so they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, now draw out now some of the water and take it to the head waiter. And so they took it to him. When the head waiter, waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and he did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head water called to the bridegroom and said to the bridegroom, remember the bridegroom would have been on the hook for this. You guys with me? The bridegroom would have been the one disgraced, shamed. He would have been walking forward with a marriage that set out with disgrace. So he brought it to the, the bridegroom and he says, every man serves the good wine first and when the people have drunk freely, in other words, they get a little tipsy, then he serves the poorer wine or the lesser wine or the not as good wine, the cheaper wine. But you have kept, say this with me, the good wine. Say good wine. Some of your versions say the choice wine. Say choice wine. And that's actually the title of this sermon if you want to write it down. Choice wine. You have saved the choice wine until now. And then it says, this is the beginning of his signs that Jesus did in Cana and manifested his glory. In other words, this was the first of all the signs and wonders and miracles that he did moving forward. This was the first. Now, you guys, come on. There's got to be something to, do, to this because Jesus never does anything without a purpose. Why? First of all, why did Jesus act? Because what took place here was the essence of why he came the bride and groom were about to be disgraced. It was about to happen. That's why Mary came with a big fat exclamation point comment. They're out of wine. She knew what that meant. Everyone knew what that meant. And certainly the groom and the bride would have known what that meant. They were about to be disgraced. Their new life together was going to be covered in shame and regret. And yet Jesus came to offer new life, right? Again, that's his MO, that's his job description, to offer new life. And the life was a life that's free of shame and regret. And so, that, in fact, in that moment, he was very empathetic, very full of compassion. I thought about how it was the law and tradition that was about to set the course for their marriage because of law and tradition, they were about to be disgraced. And it would have been law and tradition that Jesus truly could have said, Mom, I can't do anything yet. I'm not 30. But again, this is Jesus' job description. Jesus, the vision for Jesus' life was to come and fulfill the law. He's not bound by the law, and he certainly didn't do away with the law. His motive and desire is always to fulfill the law. Are you with me? So he moves forward. I'm not quite 30, but you know what? This is important. I think there's so much, me personally, I think there's so much that he's wanting to teach here. So what did he do? He turned these six water pots into choice wine. 
And these were pots that were designated for lawful purification. Can I ask you a question? Did the law really work? Now, we know it was given by God, and it was good for a season. But did it really bring freedom? I'm asking you. This is not rhetorical. I'm asking you to respond. Did the law really bring freedom? Did it truly bring purification? Let me, ask, let me say it this way. Did it truly bring forgiveness? No, because Romans 4 tells us that at the end of the day, the law still brought about death. It needed a fulfillment. It needed something that all the law and the prophets pointed to something, and that something or someone was Jesus. And so Jesus was going to make sense of it all. So no, the law at the end of the day didn't work. So here is these six containers of water that were for the law for purification. And Jesus could have chosen anything to bring wine to that wedding. He could have like... Woo! And a little magic fountain just come up and, you know, now where it's on tap. You know, it could have been anything. But he said, hmm, well, let's do something significant here. Keep in mind, this was his very first stepping out of his ministry. I thought about how Moses turned water into blood. And that set the events of their exodus out of Egypt. And that's when God established the law for the Egyptians. Way back then with Moses, who we know is a type of Christ. He turned water into blood. The old covenant was about death, wasn't it? But Jesus turned water into wine. Choice wine. A symbol of joy. You guys with me? In John 1, verse 16 and 17, for his fullness, for of his fullness, we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized or come to fruition through Jesus Christ. You could almost say that the The water is like a relationship with God under the old covenant and the wine is like a relationship with God under the new covenant. And there's all kinds of interesting parallels there. But listen to me. Jesus didn't just produce wine. What did the guy say? This is choice wine. He didn't say, oh, good, we didn't run out of wine. He didn't say, oh, good, we still got some cheap wine left. He said, whoa, most people save the cheap stuff for the end, but you've brought out the expensive stuff at the end. Choice wine. He didn't just produce wine. He produced choice wine. And as it relates to our life, your life, my life, he doesn't want to just produce happiness. He wants to bring joy unspeakable. Do you guys see what's going on here? There's way more going on than meets the eye. It's more than just a great story, a neat little miracle. This is how he starts off his ministry by turning water into choice wine, by empathetically looking at someone whose life was about to turn out into a disgrace. Many of us have felt disgrace. We felt shame. We felt guilt, uh, um, guilt regret, all of these things, and, uh, and have even lived with it for years. Maybe you even entered into your marriage one way or the other because of choices with shame and guilt and disgrace. Or carried it in other ways. But can I tell you that his MO, the first thing that he did was provide joy 
freedom, exemption from that disgrace. It's the first thing he ever did. He stepped out, started his ministry, the work of the Father. And you know what? This is how he ends his ministry too, if you think about it. Remember at Passover when he was having his last meal with his disciples and passing this cup around? He said, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine again until when? Until we are together in heaven. And what is he talking about? The marriage supper of the Lamb. He begins his ministry at a wedding centered around joy producing choice vine, uh, choice wine. And at the end, when we are with him celebrating the marriage feast, we will drink that choice wine together. And the interesting thing is, is that we are that choice wine. Our lives are that choice vine. He is the vine, we are the branches, and we are to bear fruit according to righteousness. I want to end with this. And it's a question. Why joy is the juice? And it's a little bit of a play on words. Why joy is the juice? Why joy is so important? Why would Jesus step out to paint this great picture of the necessity of joy? Even in, even in, um, in um, you know, playing that thing with the law, the old covenant, new covenant, Moses watered to blood, him watered to wine. Why? Because it's a symbol of joy. Why is joy the juice? Y'all want me to answer those questions for you? There's probably all kinds of answers. I'm going to give you three. Why joy is the juice or the good stuff? Why it's important for us to have joy? First thing is, if you're writing things down, is because joy is the song of our salvation. Joy is the song of our salvation. You look at Psalm 95. I mean, I could go all day with verses out of the Psalms for sure. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with Psalms. Why? Because he's the rock of our salvation. And it is with joy that we sing. Let us sing for joy to the rock. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Psalm 71, my lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. Why? Because there's no other way to praise God, is there? Are you hearing me? He's praiseworthy. Is there anybody in the house that says, no, 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 he's really not. He's not that praiseworthy. No, we just had a worship time where we were able to recall a few stones of remembrance moments in our lives where he was faithful. And in that, we're like, oh man, I'm so glad he got me through that because I would have ended up wherever. Yeah, and it's out of that abundance of gratefulness, thankfulness, joy that we sing. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praise to you and my soul, which you have redeemed. And of course, we know the, the great prayer in Psalm 51 that David prayed at the, um, uh, in response to a very disgraceful season of sin with Bathsheba. He said, oh man, oh man, I've done it. Life full of disgrace. And here's his prayer. 
Lord, will you restore unto me the joy? And in that moment, he calls it of God's salvation. Will you restore unto me the joy of your salvation? Why? Because the joy is the song of our salvation. When we sing, we sing for joy. When we worship, it's because of joy. We are not like those who are um, without hope. We have joy. The second thing is this. Joy is our strength in the struggle. Joy is our strength in the struggle. And we talked about struggle a little bit during worship. But I want you to think about this. All kinds of scriptures. James said, count it all joy. Count it joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. How do you count it? You count it as joy. Romans 15 says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace so that, may he fill you with hope. Why? So that. May he fill you with joy. Why? So that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Why? So that you can make it through. Joy is our strength in the struggle. Nehemiah, we're familiar with Nehemiah 18. The joy of the Lord is my strength. You guys remember that? Joy. The joy of the Lord is my strength. In, in the context in which he says it, is powerful, amazing. Go read it. Nehemiah 8, chapter 10. But he says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Psalm 28. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and he helps me. My heart leaps for what? For joy. And then what is he said? And with my song, I praise him. Isn't that good? And the third one is joy is our help in the hoping. Joy is our help in the hoping. If you don't have joy, if you're not singing for joy, choosing joy, letting the Lord produce joy, then it is very difficult for you to have hope. If you're in a difficult situation right now and you don't have the joy of the Lord as your strength, you will have difficulty having hope for the change that God wants to bring. It's, it's kind of like common sense. Without joy, it's hard for you to have hope. Why? Because joy is your strength and joy helps in the hoping. Peter said in First Peter, his first letter that he wrote, though you have not seen him, you love him, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith. Do you hear that? Joy and the outcome of our faith are tied together. Joy is our help in the hoping. He goes on to say, the salvation of your souls. And then Paul says in Romans 15, may the God of hope, the God of hope, everybody say, the God of hope. May the God of hope fill you with something. And he he requests in in prayer for the people, I want the God of hope to fill you with something, something. Can you guess what it is? It's joy. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that, we just read this, but so that the power of the Holy Spirit may abound in you. Joy 
is the juice. The choice wine that he's wanting to produce in your heart. Did you know that, that it's one of the fruits of the Spirit? It's one of the, remember at the beginning we said you've, you've got to have the Holy Spirit. It's one of the ways that we know someone belongs to God. That they have the Holy Spirit and the fruits of the Holy Spirit. The first one is love. <laughs> the second one is joy. It's like number two. Most of the time when you hear rejoice, especially in the New Testament, it is centered around trial. You'll hear rejoice and trial or difficulty in the same sentence over and over and over. Again, I say that because some of you are in the trials of your life, difficulties, and you're trying to figure out how do I navigate this thing? How do I get through this? Joy is the song of our salvation. Joy is the strength in the struggle. Joy is our help in the hoping. You want change? Don't give up on it. How do I not give up on it? Psalm 1611, in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. You need joy? Get in the presence of God. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Someone in here is carrying around a spirit of despair. But we are not called to despair. We are called to hope. He is faithful and will come through. Lord, I pray for everyone in this house tonight. 